Does your financial advisor take the time to really listen to you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situation changes? When you work with Edward Jones, they focus on what's important to you. You'll work together and use an established process to create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And they'll partner with you to help your strategy stay on track. Visit edwardjones.com or stop by the office of Todd Nash in Coralville, Jeff Rudolph, or Scott McGill in Iowa City, or or Travis Whitmore in North Liberty. Edward Jones, Making Sense of Investing, member SIPC. Hello there. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Whenever you are listening to this podcast, hope you are having a great day. Uh, this is the Hawk Fanatic Mailbag Podcast. I am your host, Rob Howe. We are recording this on Tuesday, March the sixteenth, at about eleven thirty a.m. Central Time. So it's good morning for me. Um, but hopefully, everybody's doing well. Um, we've entered the first week of the NCAA tournament. That's hard to believe, um, but it's wonderful. After last year and, and getting around this time, the tournament being canceled, and that was kind of the one of the biggest gut punches at the beginning of this pandemic. It's great to know that uh, we'll get to see uh, a big, or excuse me, an NCAA tournament, and everybody's getting to fill out their brackets. And the Iowa Hawkeyes will open up play, I believe it's at 5.30 Central Time Saturday down in Indianapolis against Grand Canyon. Um, I believe that game's on TBS, but you want to check your local listings. I, I don't have that in front of me, but uh, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Uh, 5.30-ish uh, on, uh, on uh, Saturday. Uh, and the Iowa women play, I believe, at 11 a.m. on Sunday. And that's maybe on ABC. Could be ESPN. I don't remember. Uh, but they will open up play with Central Michigan. Uh, the Iowa men getting a two seed, matching the highest seed ever in the NCAA tournament with the 1987 Hawkeyes. Uh, and the women get a five seed and will be playing the 12 Central Michigan. So, uh Pretty cool. I was in good shape there. And then also we have the uh, wrestling nationals in St. Louis this weekend. So it's going to be a really good weekend for Iowa athletics and uh, good to see. Uh, we've all had a really tough year. And I, I almost think like that um, this week is, is going to be uh, really therapeutic in the way that, uh, you know, it kind of is a mark of how far we've come in the last year. So uh, enjoy it. Soak it up. Um, I know I will. Um, let's jump into questions here on Twitter for the Mailbag Podcast. Again, I, I recorded this Wednesday last week. 
um, because I was busy on Tuesday. I don't remember why, whatever it was, uh, pushed me to Wednesday recording last week. Um, but uh, again, I'm, I'm going to try to make this a Tuesday regular spot. We have our Hawk Fanatic uh, flagship podcast with, uh, with Pat Hardy on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, Thursday, Scott Docterman and I, Scott Docterman from The Athletic and I, record the uh, Hawkeye Hotspot podcast. So putting this on Tuesday just makes sense for us from a logistical standpoint. So you have Hawkeye podcast every day of the work week. So that's kind of my thought behind moving this to um, moving this to Tuesdays. Uh, it may be difficult when we get back to the fall and it's uh, uh, football press conference days on Tuesdays, but we'll see. We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. My plan is to keep this here uh, at least until football season. And then we'll reevaluate things then if I can, if I can make it happen to stay on Tuesdays uh, in the fall during football season, I probably will do that, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Um, But I appreciate you guys listening as always. And we'll jump right in Justin Daggert at J Daggert 11 on Twitter. And this was from March 13th. And this is a good example of Justin got in after my last podcast which was the 10th last Wednesday um, and checked in on, on uh, March 13th, uh, which was whatever, uh, what would that have been Saturday with his question. And I encourage you guys to do that. If you're listening to this and miss out or you're listening to this and like, Hey, I have a question. Go to Twitter. Now use the HF mail, HF mail hashtag. You, if you hashtag it that, I will be able to find this and go back and look at the last question I answered from the previous week and then just pick up where that left off. As I said, Justin checked in on, I believe it was Saturday or Sunday during the weekend, uh, and I appreciate him doing so. Um, and he asked, with all the PR blunders Gary Barta has had, why does he still have a job at Iowa? This is a, uh, this is a complicated question. Uh, but one that I think is asked frequently. Uh, I will start with saying that being an athletic director at a uh, high major power five university is not easy. Uh, there is a lot of, there are a lot of things that, that come your way that you have to handle. Having said that, uh, these athletic dire- directors are paid very well or Gary Barter makes a million dollars a year, I believe. Um, and it's progressively, you know, built up to that salary. Um, so he's handsomely paid for his duties. He has just not had a good track record with PR, whatever that is. If, it, if partially that's the age of social media, that every misstep or mistake he makes is magnified. Um, I think that certainly plays into it, but I'm not going to, you know, reintroduce uh, the missteps and the PR uh, blunders, as you say, uh, you, people can Google it and go back through, but uh, the latest, the latest uh, story was the retiring of numbers and uh, the blowback that he got from the uh, Roy Marble family when he retired Luca Garza's number. The, the Marbles were not upset with Luca Garza, or uh, they didn't feel like Gar- Luca didn't deserve his number retired. It was more that. 
go, and again, go back and I'm not going to go through this story again. You guys can, it's been, you know, well documented and written about, and you can read what the situation was if you are, are unfamiliar with the, uh, with the member retirement issue, the latest uh, issue that, that, you know, I guess, I don't want to say caused, but um, uh, Gary Barta ended up having a press conference because of that, uh, or, or making a public statement, apologizing, apologizing, excuse me, to the marbles. Um, I, you know, I don't know where, where Gary Barta falls in the pantheon of athletic directors and how they've handled situations. Uh, we are, we live in our Iowa bubble here and are familiar with everything that he does, most everything he does uh, that we care about. Um, and obviously there have been issues with that. So I think to answer your question, though, how does he still have a job? The people that pay him feel like he's the guy for the job. And uh, he's well-liked by the head football coach, by the men's basketball coach, who both are, are uh, carry a lot of weight, particularly the football coach with boosters uh, and people that, you know, the athletic department is a self funding entity it doesn't take university money it does not take taxpayer money so the money that's in there is raised and gary bart is very good at raising money in conjunction with his coaches and that's the system that uh they care most about that's that's what's most important is people making money it's it's kind of sad to say at times but that is really what drives the bus and that's why and, and you know I, I think if you look at you know the success or um how well the programs in the athletic department are doing now from you know football to men's basketball to women's basketball to wrestling track um you know I'm trying to think of other sports that are doing well. Uh, I think men's tennis is doing pretty well. Unfortunately, that's one of the, uh, the uh, sports that's being eliminated. But I, I think it's just – I think part of our perception of this and, and whether that's reality or not is it just seems like periodically we're dealing with another PR mess where Gary Bart is at the front end of it. And I think that is hard to, um, and I don't necessarily think you need to uh, erase that from your mind or your memory. It is what it is. I mean, if these things weren't happening, again, I don't know in the context of nationally what, how he stacks up against other athletic directors and other universities and what they're dealing with, because I don't, I don't comb through that information. I don't know what other issues the, the other universities are dealing with. It seems like he has more than the universities that I do follow, at least from a, a cursory standpoint, which are the Big Ten schools. But again, I don't really know, you know, something like the Marble um, number controversy, uh, you know, how many of those things are happening at different universities not a number of controversies, but stories of, of that ilk. So I think, you know, Gary, Gary, certainly his legacy is going to be complicated. I don't think it's going to be, I think the PR blunders, it's PR, it's public relations, how the public, public receipt perceives you. 
I think at the end of the day, when he's done here, I think some people will remember the success that he had um, in, in, you know, that, that his teams enjoyed during the, um, during his run here, uh, how the athletic teams performed. But I think at the end or at the beginning of the story is go, are going to be those issues uh, that he had in public relations with, you know, from the Jane Meyer to the racial bias in the football program to the Gary Dolphin issues to the Fran McCaffrey issues uh, to the marble to the eliminating of programs. I mean, it's just the list goes on and on and he's going, that's going to be part of his story. I think if you're objective, you also fold in the success that he's had uh, in building his athletic programs, but he also had the Licklider hire too. So it's pretty complicated. And I think part of that is he's had a longer run than a lot of people have. I mean, athletic directors don't always last as long as he has. So I think that's part of the equation. I don't know if I really answered your question, Justin, uh, but I think at the root of it, at the bottom of it is money talks. And the people that pay or the people that are, are most responsible for funding the athletic department are okay with Gary Barter being the athletic director. That's about the easiest way to answer that. So I went, that, went, that was a, uh, a long, drawn-out explanation of uh, your question. But thank you for asking it, Justin. And uh, check in again. Appreciate you uh, uh, being a part of the, the Mailbag Podcast. E at NBA underscore underscore 2014 on Twitter, a frequent contributor to the podcast. Which teams do you think have the best chance of making the final four? Who do you think this year's champion will be? And how far will Iowa go? I have not filled out my bracket yet. So some of these questions I don't, I won't have an answer to for, and I apologize. I, if I'll, I'll hit on these next week when I, or maybe on the uh, hotspot podcast when I, when I uh, go through and, and with Scott, maybe we'll, uh, we'll pick our final four on that podcast and champion. Uh, but I have not had an opportunity to do that yet. Um, so I really don't have my final four or my champion yet or how far Iowa will go. But uh, I think Iowa's got a really, really nice chance to get to that Elite Eight game against Gonzaga. Um, And then who knows? Uh, Watching those teams play the first time, Gonzaga was clearly the better team. It's it's still the better team. If I'm I'm asked to bet my money, my hard-earned money on on who would win just straight up, I'm going to pick Gonzaga. But I've said this before. I don't think there's a team I've seen this year that Iowa is incapable of beating um, if it plays well. And I still stand by that. I think Iowa could win this tournament if everything broke right and it played six really good games in a row. And we saw that during this last stretch of the season up until the loss against Illinois in the semifinals of the Big Ten tournament that Iowa was capable of playing at a very high level and playing pretty good defense to go with a very efficient offense. So, I, I certainly think Iowa is a is a national championship contender in this year. Where does it fall in the Pantheon? Well, it's going to have to make up ground on Illinois, a team that lost two twice in the regular season. Uh, we don't know about Michigan and, and the availability of Isaiah Livers. Obviously, if he doesn't play, that changes Michigan a great deal, in my opinion. And I think uh, the opinion of people who watch the game, how, how important Isaiah is to uh, – 
that that team and that program. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think Baylor's a contender. Um, who knows? I saw Houston. I like Houston a lot. I think Arkansas is really good. Ohio State can play at a high level. All of these teams, I think, have an opportunity. I think Gonzaga would probably be my favorite at this point. But again, I haven't gone through the bracket, um, and I will do that, and then I'll just pick, and I'll be wrong, and I won't win. Uh, the only bracket that I, the only bracket challenge that I enter each year is the one within my household with myself, my wife, and and our three kids. Uh, and whoever wins uh, the um, pool gets to choose where we eat dinner. Um, you know, we pick a night and then whoever wins gets, but it's mostly for bragging rights because then you can just tease the other people in the house that you won. I think I may have won last year. My son's won two or three times in a row. Um, the youngest daughter who's now 10 has previously picked based on mascots. We'll see if she takes that same approach this year, but um, yeah, that's, that's kind of uh, the, the approach that I take, <laughs> take to the, to the uh, tournament bracket. I try to uh, gain bragging rights within my own household, but uh, these games are tough. I mean, we see upsets every year and it's going to be fun and I'm really looking forward to it, but uh, I appreciate that question, E, and, I, and I'll try to answer it Thursday on the Hotspot podcast. I'll try to fill up my bracket between now and then uh, and give a chance uh, give you an insight into what not to pick <laughs> if I can do so. Uh, if there are any COVID, this is an e second question. If there are any COVID-19 postponements, cancellation and March Madness, will the championship be not as meaningful like the BCS was? It's a good question, E. And I think there's, you know, reality says that that is a concern. Um, you know, we've seen some issues here uh, already with Kansas and uh, who am I? Who, there's another school. It's Kansas. And I can't think of the other school that's dealing with COVID issues right now. I apologize. Uh, but um, and I saw another one this morning where uh, a team was compromised. Uh, Gina Oriyama for the Connecticut women won't be there to coach the first two rounds for, for them. Um, so we've already see, we're already seeing an impact, and I'm I'm guessing as this week goes along, we're going to hear. We, we saw yesterday uh, a group of referees that decided it was a good idea to go out to dinner in Indianapolis while their rooms were getting uh, ready. Ended up testing positive and being sent home. So it's hard to it, it, it's hard to wrap your mind around people that still don't understand how contagious this disease is, but I'm not going to go down this road far and, and dig into these weeds far, but it's pretty obvious to me that some people take it more seriously than others. And that is going to create problems because the people that don't take it as seriously or aren't as cautious, put themselves and others at risk of catching the virus. And the protocols are in place that if you have the virus within your program, whether that's, you know, uh, support staff, coaches, players, whatever it may be, contract, contact tracing rules dictate how that's going to be handled. So it's just, you go from, but I think the good thing about this tournament is hopefully we only see the issues at the front end um, because the teams are all arriving in Indianapolis. Now they go through testing, 
They go through quarantine for a couple of days. I think Iowa comes out, to, come, went in on Sunday night and comes out tomorrow morning in terms of being able to, you know, be around each other again uh, as a team and they can start practicing. Uh, but there are very strict protocols in place once you get to Indianapolis to make sure that it, if there is a case that it's contained and then beyond that, then you're in you know, you have uh, restrictions and guidelines. Now, we could talk about whether this is fair or not to players and, and all that, that, you know, there are a lot of layers and nuance to this whole thing. But once these teams get to Indianapolis, they're there until they lose. So, you know, as long as they're following the guidelines and the safety protocols, you have to think that as time goes along, you hope that there are fewer issues based on people being basically in the bubble. Um, like we saw with the NBA and the NHL last year. So I think the issues we're going to see would be at the front end of this. And then hopefully as we go along and get to 16 and eight and what have you, uh, those teams will be in the bubble and there won't be as many issues. But yeah, I mean, if you lost Gonzaga or Baylor or Illinois, uh, you know, if they got knocked out of the tournament and didn't have enough players to play and couldn't compete, um, Virginia was the other team that I couldn't think of, but yeah, Virginia and Kansas. And there was another one this morning, but if any of those top seeds got knocked out of this tournament, it would compromise how we look at it. I think we would say, well, what if this team would have been capable or able to play and not been compromised by the, by the virus. So yeah, I I do think it would lose meaning if something happened and it was, uh, it affected and knocked a high seated team out of the event. Thank you for the question. E always appreciate you checking in. Uh, Daniel Schneider at Cosmo doggy dog, another frequent contributor to the mailbag podcast asks any thoughts on the bets and Barnett hires. Um, for those that did not see this news, it was made official yesterday on Monday, March the 15th that um, former Iowa running back Liddell Betts, uh, who was coaching high school in Florida, was hired to coach that position at, you know, that he played at Iowa. He will now be coaching the running backs, taking over for Derek Foster, who left this offseason to go to the Los Angeles Chargers. Uh, and then George Barnett uh, was hired as the offensive line coach to take the place of Tim Polishek, who left to be the offensive coordinator at Wyoming. And these are both, to me, really good hires in their own ways. Um, Betts is a connection to the past, um, a guy who was, you know, in that transitional period. He was a Hayden Fry recruit, played one year for Hayden, and then played three seasons for, for Kirk Ferentz. A lot of connections to the past. Former players I saw, you know, tweeting out on social media their um, congratulations to him. Uh, their, you know, they felt, they feel like, okay, now there's another guy that's involved in the program uh, that went through the program. So that gives you Brian Ferns, the offensive coordinator, LeVar Woods, the special teams coordinator, Kelvin Bell, the defensive line coach, and Liddell Betts, the running backs coach, you have four Hawkeye, former Hawkeye players in the program, which 
I think is good. I, I think that's a connection that you sell on the recruiting trail. I'll be interested to see with Liddell. Um, he obviously has been down in Miami. He's from Blue Springs, Missouri, the Kansas City area. Um, he, he's played in the, he played nine years, I believe it was, in the NFL. Um, he has a lot of um, – what's the word I'm looking for? Not ammunition, but he is – you know, his resume, I think, will work very well on the recruiting trail from where he has connections to his background in the college and the NFL um, to just him being a really good person and a good guy uh, and somebody that I think that recruits will connect with. He hasn't coached on the college level yet, but he's coaching a position he played uh, in high school, in college, and in the NFL. I think he has enough experience with the position to be able to teach it. Um, as far as George Barnett goes, uh, was at Tulane, just got to Tulane. So he never actually coached a season at Tulane as the offensive line coach. Um, had been with Chuck Martin at Miami of Ohio, rebuilt that program. I think you can, if you, having been on press conferences when with Chuck Martin, uh, when Iowa played Miami of Ohio, Chuck really was forthcoming about how he wanted to model how he rebuilt Miami of Ohio to the way Kirk Ferentz rebuilt and, you know, uh, got his program rolling at Iowa. So a lot of connections there. They're very similar just in terms of approach and style and teaching fundamentals. So that gives me, uh, that encourages me or gives me, uh, you know, confidence that George Barnett is a teacher of the offensive line. And again, he's coming into a building where the head coach is an offensive line coach and the offensive coordinator is an, is an offensive line coach. So plenty of, you know, uh, minds to, to, uh, come together to, to teach that position, which is such an important position in every level of football and every program and every franchise and every high school. And it's no different at Iowa. So I think these are two really solid hires. I think Iowa lost two really good assistant coaches in Foster and Polishek, but I think they've replaced them with two really good assistants, uh, guys that I think can make an impact here. So I like these hires and maybe that's just me. Um, Maybe I would have said that about most hires, but these look like really solid hires. And I don't know, I don't, I mean, Barnett was in Miami of Ohio. I'm not very familiar with his recruiting areas, but I'm guessing it's the Midwest and in this region. And Iowa does most of its work in this, you know, in this footprint. So I think he'll probably help in that regard. And I saw um, Blair Sanderson from Rivals and, and HawkeyeReport.com has reported on Twitter a few times where uh, Barnett is already out um, connecting with offensive line recruits, trying to uh, build relationships with the, guy, with the Iowa's offensive line targets in the, in the 2022, 2023, and beyond uh, those classes. So that's a good sign. My, my guess is Liddell will hit the ground running here as well. Uh, and um, you know, start to stick his, or not to stick his head out, but start to make connections uh, with 
players that, you know, prospects that he will recruit. Uh, so thank you for that question, Daniel. I like the hires and uh, I appreciate the question. Uh, sit down at Love the Hawks on Twitter, another frequent contributor to the podcast. Does Iowa basketball go after any of the ISU or mini players? Um, I think Fran has always approached this is he's open to all possibilities and all avenues of improving his program and adding players. He, like Kirk Ferentz, is very, very conscious of fit and culture within the program, guys that fit in to the system that aren't going to be distractions that regardless of talent aren't going to come in and mess up the locker room. And Fran has been very, very picky when it comes to that. Uh, we saw Bakari Evelyn come in last year, Evelyn, Evelyn, I'm not sure how he says that. That's bad of me. Um, I think it's Evelyn, but anyway, he came in and he was a fit. He understood his role. He, he meshed well with the locker room. Um, and that's kind of what, what Fran looks for in, 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 in a recruit um, when it's coming, when, you know, when somebody's coming from a different college like Iowa state or Minnesota. Um, and we'll have to see, I mean, we'll have to see which Iowa state players we saw. I think five Penn state players entered the transfer portal today uh, when it was announced that uh, the interim coach would not be retained uh, and they hired the assistant from Purdue um, names escape me because my memory sucks because I'm old uh, but uh, the situation is, is I, I've gotten the, the uh, dynamics of the situation. Uh, the players that were there were not happy with how Pat Chambers uh, was ushered out of the Penn State program. They were not happy that the interim coach was not retained after this season. And, uh, and as, a, as a result, are not happy that they're bringing in somebody else from another program. So a bunch of those guys, uh, Jamari Wheeler, uh, Brockington, her, um, some, some really good recruits that are going to, or some really good port transfer portal guys that are going to attract a lot of attention, uh, are in there now from Penn state. So I'm sure we'll see some from Minnesota. I'm guessing we'll see some from Iowa state. I think Fran will do his due diligence. Uh, I think Iowa could use a big man, and we'll get into this in a minute here because I know I have some other questions on the Iowa basketball roster and what um, avenues Fran and the staff may go down here in the spring and summer to uh, supplement the guys that are coming back. Um, but, yeah, my, my overall, you know, generalized answer to your question uh, Love the Hawks is that Fran will look, and I don't care if it's ISU or Minnesota or wherever, he'll look for good fits. And that's kind of, he does his, uh, you know, he, he does his homework when it comes to that stuff. And he has, you know, being in the business so long, he has connections where he can reach out to other coaches, high school, college, and say, hey, what do you know about this kid? What do you think of this kid? What do you fit with what I do? Um, because that's the most important thing. You can have the you know, the best talent in the world. Um, and I think we saw that Minnesota did not live up to its talent. 
Uh, Iowa State certainly did not have a high level of talent, but more talent than to go winless in the Big 12. Uh, Indiana uh, underachieved with the talent level it had. So all of those things come into play. It's, a, it's also about fit and locker room and culture. And Fran, I think that's the top of the list for him when it comes to adding players to his roster. Uh, Robin Schuster at Schuster20. I believe this is Robin's first question. I appreciate you joining the podcast, Robin. Please feel free to uh, weigh in with comments and questions uh, every week. Uh, we, the more the merrier around here is how we uh, – that's the motto of the Hawkeye – Hawk Fanatic Mailbag Podcast. <laughs> Uh, I think that motto has been over years. But anyway, Robin asks, with Chrome out at ISU, can Iowa get Xavier Foster as a transfer? We've got a lot of these questions. Um, Doug Wantney at Doug underscore Wantney. I hope you're unpronouncing your last name right, Doug. I apologize if I'm not. It's Doug underscore Wantney, W-A-T-N-E. Um, he asked, what do you think Xavier Foster is thinking right now, Iowa and Iowa State, in wildly different places? I'm going to combine Doug and Robin's questions together here because they're both on Xavier Foster. Um, I don't know how many people follow me on, on Twitter, um, but uh, there was a little kerfuffle hubbub, I believe it was, during the weekend, maybe Friday night. Um, where uh, a member of the national media who used to be a member of the local media was called out by Connor McCaffrey uh, for his takes in the past. Uh, and one of those takes was that Xavier Foster choosing Iowa State over Iowa, even though he grew up an Iowa fan, was an indictment of Fran McCaffrey. Uh, and the reasoning that Xavier used was he felt like he had a better chance to win at Iowa State. Now, fast forward, that was what Xavier thought at that time. And I don't think a lot of people said, well, you know, he's out of his mind. Iowa and Iowa State were both kind of doing well, but obviously now we know their programs going in different directions. And Iowa, uh, obviously, as a two seed in the NCAA tournament, is at a, as a, a, is at a much more favorable place than, than where Iowa State is. But when Xavier and his family, who I got to know during the recruiting process, made that choice, it wasn't anything against Iowa. It was that they believed more in Iowa State and Steve Prone. And that's, you know, when I talked, to, when we talked on the previous question with Love the Hawks about, you know, transfers and bringing players in, um, and fits. Those are what you, I mean, that's part of the equation. It's not just I'm going somewhere to win. It's where do I fit in the locker room? Uh, do I connect with the guys on the team? What's my relationship like with the coaches? They're, they're, they, it's an inexact science. You pick a school based on what you feel is the best choice and best fit for you. But again, it's inexact. Just, you know, we talked about all the transfers at Penn State. Go look at the transfer portal for football and basketball. All of those players chose a school. I'm going to say all. Some, there are a lot of layers and nuance to this. But for the most part, guys choose a school that they feel is best for them, a best fit, best connection with the team, best connection with the coaches. And we see it day in and day out that it doesn't always work out. There are a lot of instances where it does not work out. Now, getting back to Xavier Foster, 
I haven't talked to Xavier since he committed to Iowa State. I have no idea how he feels about things at Iowa State. He got hurt this season, missed most of the season after I think he had a surgery. I'm not, I don't follow Iowa State that closely. I don't know what the, I don't remember what the injury was, if there was surgery. I know it knocked him out for the season. Um, But basically it was a redshirt year for him anyway. So he still has, he didn't lose any uh, eligibility. So for him, and, and this is most speculation on my part, part point is I'm, my guess is Jamie Pollard, the athletic director, has met with the Iowa State basketball players and said, listen, this is what I felt was best. Moving on from Steve Prohm, going to hire another coach. Please hang in there. Give us a chance to introduce the new coach. Meet with him and see how, how, how you feel. Um, see if this is the, the program still for you. We hope it is, but if it isn't, you know, we, this is what I hope would happen with Jamie Pollard. And, and he seems like a type of guy that would do this. If you feel like you need to move on, we'll help you do so. Because this should be about the student athletes. You, those kids committed to Steve Prohm thinking they would be playing for him for the entirety of their college careers. And now they're not based on the decision made by the athletic director. So for Xavier Foster, what is he thinking in terms of Doug's question? I don't know, but I think he's the type of prospect, top 50 in the country. He can wait this out. He can just see who the new coaches say, hey, whoever it may be, what is your vision for me? How do I fit in? How do you, how do you, how, how, how will you use me? You know, where do I fit into this program? And then you kind of get a feel for that. And then if it, again, if it doesn't work out, you maybe look around. Now, if, to Robin's question, um, if Xavier Foster decides that the new coach at Iowa State isn't somebody that he um, fits with um, and decides to move on, then it comes down to is Xavier Foster a kid that Iowa still feels fits into its program? Um, and would it take – would Fran McCaffrey say, okay, Xavier, um, come on, join the program? Obviously, Iowa will have a big need in the middle with, with Luca Garza moving on. But just it's hard to say, you know, and I understand the questions. I'm trying to give you an overview of how I see the situation, Robin and Doug. With Xavier Foster, it's not that um, Iowa couldn't get him or Iowa won't get him or what is he thinking. I think it's a fluid situation. Would I be shocked if he ended up in Iowa? No, I would not. Would I be shocked if, or surprised if he stays at Iowa State? No, I would not. I think it's something that has to play out. Why, the way I would frame it is if he does choose to leave Iowa State, if he decides that that's not the place for him anymore and Iowa was interested, I could see that being a fit. And we'll have to see as time plays out. We went through this last year with DJ Carton when he left Ohio State. There were a lot of rumors about, hey, you know, Iowa was in his final five. Is he going to? You know, that wasn't a fit there. Um, I, I don't think DJ really considered Iowa. Um, when he picked Ohio State, I think he wanted to get away um, and did. Um, last year when he was on the open market again, I don't think Iowa considered him very much. They had a point guard coming in and Aaron Euless. They had Toussaint coming back. They had already made their choices at point guard. And I think that's a big part of this equation, too, that can't be left out. You have guys in your current roster. 
yeah, you want to have the best term team possible. And if you can bring in a piece that's going to help you win games now, that's important. But you also have to consider what's on your roster. Those are people. Those are people you said, come here, play, we'll develop you, you're going to help us win. You crew over top of them with graduate transfers uh, or just general regular transfers, you're sending a message to them, and now then th there's an op you know then there's a, the the chance that they end up going in the transfer portal and leaving your program, and then you just have constant turnover, and you don't want that. Roster construction is very hard in college basketball, and you have to do the best you can to keep the group together. Iowa right now is a team that's veteran, and that's why it's a number two seed. It's not loaded with five star recruits. It's guys that stayed here for three, four, five years and developed. And that, to me, if you're Iowa, is what you're trying to build your program on. Guys that stay longer, because that's how you compete. I think Villanova is a great example of that. Um, Jay Wright has gotten good recruits, but he's also gotten guys that he can develop over two, three, four years that put him in a position to be a, you know, a top 10, 15 type team and make runs at national championships. And I think that's the model that Iowa needs to use. I just don't think you're going to see Iowa be a school that's going to be loaded with four and five star recruits. We've seen it over time. That's not how it works here. So I think these are all different layers and part of this, this equation that you have to take into effect here. So appreciate the questions on Xavier Foster. I didn't mean to get off on a tangent there, but hopefully I kind of explained at least my view of how Fran is building his program and how things might go in terms of this offseason and bringing in players uh, to fill uh, the potential role there. Um, Alec Ahmed Johnson at Ahmed Johnson on Twitter, another frequent contributor to the podcast. And thank you to Doug, uh, Doug Wantney and, and Robin Schuster for checking in. I don't think you guys have been part of this podcast before, but please do not be strangers in the future. But Alec Ahmed Johnson has thoughts on the new 2022 commit on the basketball side. And that is Riley Mulvey a 6'11", 230-pound big man out of Albany, New York, St. Thomas Moore, uh, committed on Monday, uh, March the 15th, to the Hawkeyes. Uh, he had told me that I was always been his number one. Um, he was hoping to get back and visit this spring. Now it looks like the earliest he'd be able to visit is the summer. He's already visited here before um, this, uh, the fall of 2019. He visited. Uh, for a football game and got to spend the entire weekend here. Uh, he visited, I believe it was the same weekend as Josh or Gundale, uh when Josh took his visit here. So got to know him a little bit. Um, you know, he's, he's a kid from Albany, New York. Fran coached in Siena, which is in Schenectady, New York, I believe, which is like a, you know, Coralville to Iowa City to, to Albany comparison, if you will. And um, Fran went back. Fran and his whole family, Margaret and the kids, went back to Albany last winter before the pandemic, and they went to an open gym, I believe. You can read this. Well, I can't say that on this podcast because it's on a different website. But I have a story out there, if you Google, uh, when, when Riley Mulvey was offered um, last April. 
and he talked about the McCaffrey family coming to see him at an open gym as an entire family, and he got to meet them. His family got to meet the McCaffrey family. It was just it was a good bonding experience, and I think once Iowa offered last April, it was going to be tough for some other team to be able to take Riley away. Syracuse really tried, and Syracuse does not lose many recruiting battles in the state of New York, particularly if you're unfamiliar with um, the state of New York, Albany is upstate New York. It's the state capital. Syracuse is western New York. But anything up in that middle of New York to the west, if it's a star player, they usually end up going to Syracuse. There are guys that don't. King Rice from Binghamton back in the day. I know I'm dating myself, but he ended up going to North Carolina uh, and turned down Syracuse. But that being said, if Syracuse goes after a guy in that area, they usually end up going to Syracuse and staying home. It's a, it's Syracuse, um, one of the you know the top programs in the country for a long, long time. Uh, but Fran again, as he did with Luca Garza, got in really early with Riley uh, and built a relationship and identified him early. Penn State also offered, and there were some other schools that offered and others that were involved. Obviously, the pandemic and the lack of there being, or, or I should say that the dead period that's gone on now for over a year um, compromises everybody's recruitment. Maybe that played in Iowa's advantage a little bit, but I still think when Fran and the staff got in really early with Riley and his family, they built a foundation that was going to be tough for another school to overcome. Uh, in terms of what he is on the, on, as a player, um, I, I think he's, Maybe a little bit more Jack Nungy than Luca Garza. Uh, long, athletic, uh, has a you know pretty good passer, uh, has a decent shot, mid-range game. I think eventually he can extend that game. Uh, he's really has good footwork around the basket. Uh, he's a guy I think with a high ceiling. He's a guy that still has another entire year of high school left. So I think at this point, like Fran and, and Sherm did with Luca. They can start to give him um, programs to help develop his game, tips, uh, different workouts, things that help him develop. And uh, I think the sky's the limit for Riley. I think it's a great land. It's a great uh, pickup for Iowa. Uh, it's a kid I think that fits in well here, um, and I think it's a great building block for the future. Because unfortunately, um, we know that uh, this is going to be it for you know the the Luca Garza Jordan Bohannon era of uh, Iowa basketball so you need guys to to take the baton and move on into the future to keep this program at a high level and uh, I think Mulvey could be a a piece of that um, I had some other questions here that people like Pat Hardy do not use the hashtag HF mail so then I have to hunt them down I do remember Pat's question um, and it was basically Liddell Betts or Sean Green as my top running back during the Kirk Ferentz era and uh, why. I tweeted this out, I think, on Saturday when Pete Thamel from Yahoo broke the news that Liddell Betts was going to be the new running backs coach at Iowa. I tweeted out that, for my money, Liddell Betts is the best running back of the Kirk Ferentz era. A lot of people reacted with, what about Sean Green? And I get that. And Sean's right there. They both were just tremendous running backs that were, that were a joy to cover. Um, both good guys uh, and both just super talented. There were some 
runs that still stick in my mind for both of those guys. Uh, the one, the one for Sean Green against Wisconsin uh, at Kinnick, where he just he used every tool in the box to score a 50-yard touchdown. And, and I encourage you guys to go to YouTube and, and find that run. Uh, Ken O'Keefe told me he goes the one thing about Sean is his vision. He could see what was happening not only on the first level but on the second and third levels to have that vision to be able to, to pick lanes to run in. And I think that was an underrated – people saw Sean as a power back, and I think he had that in him, but underrated was his vision. Liddell, for me, he played, I believe, on his first three years with Iowa. His teams won a combined 11 games. Um, so that gives you kind of an indication of, and the first two won four games, or the second two, Kirk Ferentz's first year, they won one game, second year won three games. So seven of those wins came in Hayden Fry's last year when Iowa finished seven and five, I believe. Um, and I could have this wrong too, but that's what I looked up. And if I'm wrong on that, regardless of the wins and losses, the first two years of Kirk Ferentz era were brutal. Offensive line was in disarray. 1999 team, Iowa won one game. Liddell Betts averaged 4.4 yards per carry during that season behind a line that was – makeshift is being generous. It was a mess. And, uh, you know, he's a guy who ranks second in all-time rushing yards on Iowa's list. And I would submit that if you go through that list – and look at which of those guys played on the least talented or least successful teams, his, his seasons are going to stick out above, you know, Cedric Shaw and Albert Young and Akram Wadley and whoever else, and, you know, Fred Russell, whoever else is on that list. Liddell Betts did the most with the least, and that's not a knock of any, on any of his teammates. It was a rebuild. Um, and to, I guess, supplement that discussion. Liddell Betts, I believe, caught 70 passes in his career. Let me look this up. He had or 700 yards receiving. I mean, he was a really good – he was their best receiver in 99. Well, maybe not. I mean, you have Kevin Casper and other guys like that. He was one of their better receivers as a running back. And let me look this up here so I make sure I do his – do him, uh, do his his work at Iowa Justice. Um, so yeah, he had he averaged four point five yards in nineteen ninety nine to carry. Um, he's caught seventy two passes in his career for seven hundred and two yards. That's almost ten yards a carry, um, or ten yards a reception. Excuse me. Uh, he ran for 3,686 yards, um, and he had 1,000 yards. He was a 1,000-yard rusher on the 2,000 Hawkeyes who finished with three wins. He averaged 4.7 yards per carry that year. To me, that is – I mean, his total scrimmage yards were – he had 4,388 total scrimmage yards with playing on three really poor teams. And then 2001, Iowa made it to the Alamo Bowl. 
he was hurt and couldn't play in that, which was just – it seemed unfair. It is unfair, but it's sports and, we, and injuries are part of the game. But um, to me – and I love Sean Green, and he had a season for the ages, won the Dope Walker in 2008, great year, third-round pick of the Jets, spent time in the NFL. Liddell Betts spent, um, spent nine years in the NFL. Um, if you're looking at, you know, from a longevity standpoint, um, he had a better career than Sean Green in the NFL. And I think that speaks to the talent that he had when he was at Iowa. Um, and what would have happened had he played on, you know, say the last four years of Iowa teams with the offensive line that it's had, or, you know, during that stretch of 2002 to 2004, when Fred Russell was in there. What type of stretch could Liddell Betts have had there? He ran for 3,300 and uh, 26 yards in the NFL. Eight years with the Washington football team and one year with uh, New Orleans. Uh, he also caught 188 passes for 1,646 yards in the NFL. Very accomplished player. I think he gets overlooked just because of the period at w during which he played at Iowa, which was that transition period. Um, I think if a lot of people, and now Liddell's going to, people are going to thankfully look back at Liddell's history at Iowa and, and hopefully appreciate it a lot more. But I would say, you know, to the general casual fan, he probably wasn't as well known as Fred Russell or Albert Young or Sean Green or Akram Wadley, um, maybe even Tyler Goodson for the younger generations. He was better than all of those guys, in my mind. And there's really no way to prove it one way or the other. I'm using my eyes. I have some statistical backup here. But just from watching the guy play and watching what he did on the field and all he did for those teams, granted, they didn't win a lot more games, but I think he was an integral part of building the foundation that Kirk Ferentz laid back in 2099 to rebuilding the program. The Dell Betts was a huge, huge part of that. I'm not saying Bob Sanders level, but a huge, huge part of that. So I think that was, that might be it for questions here. Um, there was another question in here that was asked that probably didn't use the hashtag. Uh, yes, Joe Simonson, or John Simonson, excuse me. Uh, John at, at John Simonson 814 on Twitter. I mean, this is a new contributor to the Mailbag Podcast, too, and I appreciate that. John, John asks, how many scholarships does Fran have available for next year? And then he's got parenthetical reference. Two, do you see a grad transfer late signee or will he stash them? I touched on this a little bit earlier, John, the dynamic here. I think all three of the options that you gave me are in play provided it's the right fit, uh, be it a grad transfer, be it a late signee. If he can't find one or the other that fits in, he'll, he can stash it. Um, if you look at where we stand right now, this is that we know Luca Garza and Jordan Bohannon are set to move on. They've already indicated that they're done at Iowa. This is the last, this is the last hurrah, so to speak, in the NCAA tournament. That leaves 12 of 13 available scholarships spoken for next year. Again, 
as we sit here right now. That's Joe Toussaint, Jack Nungy, uh, Aaron Ewis, C.J. Frederick, Joe Wieskamp, Tony Perkins, the Murray Twins, the McCaffrey brothers, Josh Ogundale, and Peyton Sanford, the incoming uh, freshman from Waukee, uh, who's more of a wing player for the uninitiated. Uh, I, I encourage you guys, to, again, to go to YouTube or some other form of uh, online video to check out Peyton's game. I think he'll fit in well here. A couple things here. You could see a transfer or two among the group that I just listed. You never know. And I also, if I'm betting right now, right now as I sit here today on March the 16th at 12.25 p.m., I think Joe Wieskamp is done at Iowa. I think he ends up going uh, and trying his luck at the NBA. Um, and we can talk about that in a different podcast that's just – from what I've heard and what I've gathered, I think that's the way he's leaning. Now he could come back. And again, that would leave one scholarship open based on all of those names that I just read. There would still be room for one more. And you can go grad transfer, late signee, or, or roll it over to the 2022 class. Um, and we'll see. I, I think Fran has all those options available to him. I think he's going to have, again, I believe that Joe Wieskamp is going to move on. So I think that's going to give Fran two open scholarships with which to work this spring and summer. And knowing how this staff and how hard this staff works, they're already looking. Transfer portal, high school kids, prep school kids, you know, guys that went on to grad school or um, – yeah, it's grad school, right? Where the Murrays went, I guess, post-grad, I guess it's what it's called. Turn over all those rocks, find guys that fit. I would not be surprised at all to see Iowa add at least one more, if not two more players in the spring. Just kind of keep, you know, keep up with, with me on Twitter, on these podcasts, the one I do with Scott Dockerman. Names will surface here and we'll bring them to you as we know. A lot of high school basketball is still going on or just getting finished. Um, I was in the midst of a what it hopes is a historic run in the NCAA tournament, and that's the number one priority for the coaching staff right now. But I'm sure they're also, as I said, feelers out, looking, transfer portal, all the options that are available to them for next year. That recruiting never stops. So uh, just kind of keep up with that. They're – there's at least one scholarship open, and I think potentially at least two with Joe Wieskamp moving on. So definitely something, uh, definitely something to, to keep an eye on and monitor, and we will do just that moving throughout um, the rest of the spring and into the summer. So stay, uh, stay with us for that. Um, and I think that's it for questions this week, guys. It's uh, almost 1230, so... We've run this as long as we can. Appreciate all the questions. As always, please feel free to check in again for next week's podcast. Again, um, you don't need to wait until I solicit questions again next Monday or Tuesday. Um, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you can hashtag HFmail on Twitter with your question or comment, and I will come back to it and address it and um, we will, we, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it next week, whether it's a comment or a question, 
uh, on the next podcast. I can go back through that. That's the beauty of, of the HF mail hashtag. I can find your questions or comments whenever and pick up where I left off last week. So again, thank you guys for contributing to the podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, look forward to this weekend. Should be a great weekend for Hawkeye Athletics. Enjoy, and we will talk to you again next week.